Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What are we to, to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, the town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews and now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will, he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of God. It could be fun to dream about what the world would be like if there were ideal circumstances. If within us we didn't envy or resent people, if with our actions we didn't steal or go to war, if as we organize things we didn't do things that wind up unjust or damaging. If that was the nature of the world, what would it bring out of humanity? And the hope and an encouraging thing to think about is that people would be generous, we would use our words to encourage and build others up, that you can really imagine that being wonderful. But what happens if even in that scenario something goes wrong? Once a punch is thrown, what do you do? Uh, so with a punch, you can't undo it. Once there's already pain, there are lots of ways to respond, lots of options. There are many problematic ways to respond. And there are things you can do that are right, but, but whatever you do is going to be somewhat insufficient given that you can't take the pain away. And therefore, one of the tasks of human beings is to really work hard to think of how to make things right, how to make things fair. But there's always something left over that's unresolved and we carry that with us. And when a punch is thrown, it makes you wonder, well, what preceded that? What unthing said or unacknowledged thing was part of that? And then coming out of it, it's not just now uh, pain, but now there's fear. And uh, it's not easy to figure out how to prevent that from getting worse and how to fix it. And the Bible tells a story where something goes wrong right at the beginning. There's, there's a lack of trust in God and there's a turning from God but we see it quickly spills over to actions that are highly problematic. Right in the beginning of the, of the Bible, there's a murder. 
And after that murder, there's a generation that boasts about even greater vengeance. And then there's growing violence. And it, it, it becomes so convoluted that as much as we should and are tasked to try to understand the nature of what's wrong and how to fix it, and we should be using our energies to try to, to do that, there seems to be something inevitably impossible. And so when we, we look at the Bible that tells a story of humanity gone wrong, it's a history of a particular people, but it's theological. From it, we're supposed to be learning and seeing and understanding certain things. The climax of that story is the coming of Jesus and the particular events around his death and resurrection and his ascension and pouring out of the spirit. Today, the question I wanna look at is why did Jesus die? And I wanna look at that question because in the passage we're looking at, um, the, the definitive moment of the conclusion that he must die is here. Throughout John's gospel, this is not a new idea. The thought has already been, this guy's a problem. We may need to kill him. There's some anger, some resentment, some protection, whatever it is. And there's various thoughts. At one point, they pick up stones. But in this moment, the decision is made. And then this is now the rest of John's gospel is his arrest and his crucifixion. So why did Jesus die? And I wanna come at this passage from two perspectives. One is the human perspective, sort of historically, just what is the explanation that this passage gives for what decisions were made that led to his death? The second thing I wanna talk about is God's perspective. Theologically, what is the significance? God being in the midst of this happening, what was it God was doing? And so, so each passage may give a different angle on the question, why did Jesus die, especially if you read the New Testament. But I wanna look at today's passage with those two things. So first, the human perspective on why Jesus died. Um, as I said, the Bible begins with not trusting God, a turning from God, a form of rejecting God, and then actions that flow from that, that are now hard to, uh, to, to figure out um, uh, how many varied actions uh, and, and difficulties are actually shaping and influencing us. So the nature of human relations is that we all have wrong impulses. We all do wrong, wrong things, and sometimes they're relatively minor, the impatient thing that we say, but sometimes it could be extreme. Uh, we live in a place where the, in our own city, the murder rates are quite high. Um, what happens is all of those situations get confused because we have different understandings of why we do things. We try to explain things, sometimes blatantly lying to cover up, but sometimes with sincere confusion. Um, and, and human relationships are fraught. So even a relationship like uh, roommates or parent-child or a romantic couple, so often something goes wrong and it seems impossible to fix or to get past it because there are un things that are unacknowledged, unobserved, uh, dynamics that aren't always there and it makes making things right feel overwhelming. An example, when I was in elementary school, um, I don't know if, if uh, outside of my neighborhood this was, there was a thing, but there was a period where kids would take a, a, like a piece of pipe that you would use uh, in your sink and cut off a small piece and, and take a, a rubber glove, the kind that you do the dishes with, like dish gloves, you'd cut a finger from that and stretch it over the pipe and use electric tape. And then you can take, if, you, if your parents had dried beans, a black bean or something, and if you put it in, if you stretched out the, uh, the glove and let it go, it would shoot quite fast and far and would sting if it hit you. So I kept one of these in my winter jacket pocket 
which uh, created quite a bulge. And I, I was um, self-conscious that, that I knew that I could get in trouble at school, that they wouldn't want me having that with me. Um, so one day after school, I was going to the, the deli in, that was just down the block from the school. And when I went up to pay, the, the guy who owned the store and was also at the cashier said, what's that in your pocket? And instantly I was afraid that I was going to get in trouble. I don't remember exactly how old it was, I'm eight or 10 years old. But my thought was, if he finds out, if I take this out, I'm going to get in trouble. So my read on the situation was, he caught me with this thing. That I, so I sort of tried to play it off. There's nothing in my pocket. He did not care about a pipe with a rubber glove attached to it. He was concerned that I was shoplifting. So he explicitly said, you're stealing. And he got very angry, very aggressive, because I was trying to play it off as though there's nothing in my pocket. Now, here's where we're missing things. I was not stealing. I had not stolen from this store ever, had no intention on stealing. Likely, he could care less about the piece of pipe in my pocket, although it is possible that he would have confiscated it or said that he was going to tell my parents or tell the school. I don't know. But my guess is if I just would have pulled it out and said, oh, this lump in my pocket, it's this small piece of pipe, that would have been the end of it. I could have purchased my things. But instead, he kicked me out and told me to never come back. So uh, every time I walked to school with fear, because he, he, uh, you know, I was young enough, he was quite aggressive, maybe understandably so. But every time I passed the store for the, for the rest of elementary school, there was this fear that he was going to come after me. Um, we were talking past each other. He's concerned about shoplifting. I'm not going to shoplift. I'm concerned about getting in trouble. He likely would not have gotten me in trouble. The interaction went completely wrong, and I wound up sent out never to return to that store. Um, so much of what happens in our interactions are that there's, there's some peripheral fear that, that I'm not being honest. So sometimes we blatantly deceive. But sometimes I'm just holding something back that doesn't seem relevant to me, but makes our interactions confusing. And what happens over time, all of that buildup of the frustration of why are things not working? Why am I not understanding? Why am I confused? Builds up to the point where we need to vent it. And so what happens with humanity is we, we're all carrying around some measure of frustration, shame, discouragement, anger. The way we energize it is different. But there's something in us that that then in periods of time, it needs to come out. It needs to be vented and it gets more dangerous the more people that are involved. So you're venting it as an individual is a problem, but you get a group of people who come together and feel like they need to vent their hostility. It becomes quite dangerous. There's something about humanity. We're supposed to be united in love, in peace, using our wisdom for the common good. Uh, what unites people more than hating the same thing? I could hate you. But if we hate the same thing, we'll come together for a brief period to collaborate on that. That creates a problem. There's something in us that assumes with this mounting frustration, the only way to release it is somebody needs to be punished. Somebody needs to be blamed. And in more extreme circumstances, somebody needs to die. That cycle happens over and over and over. And so why did Jesus die? Here's the problem. People believed in him. Verse 45 Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, that particular event of what Jesus had done, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you could read it at the beginning of John 11. A man named Lazarus died, was placed in a tomb, and four days later, Jesus came and called him out of the tomb. 
Um, the language here in John, when it talks about the Jews, nearly everybody in John's gospel is Jewish. This is not trying to stereotype Jewish people. This is talking about the religious people that we're trying to discern, is Jesus uh, the savior or not? Large numbers of people who saw what he did with Lazarus believed. If you were there, it would be nearly impossible not to believe. If you saw Lazarus die, or if you believed by the grieving family and the fact that the stone was in front of the tomb, that he was really in there, when he was called out, how could you see that and not have a crisis? But here we are. Uh, if you weren't there, it is kind of hard to believe. And so people come and report to those in Jerusalem, Jesus just did something. He raised a dead man, and now everyone is believing. Now remember, in John's gospel, God's purpose is to give life. How do you receive life? By believing. This particular group sees belief in Christ as a problem. It's not the way that you get life. It's the way that we start to risk our lives. So in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And this is not paranoia. These were turbulent political times. And there were various movements leading up to Jesus of people who claimed to be a savior that God was raising, a political leader, a military leader, and the Romans would capture them. There was one, one group that they caught all of them and crucified them to put on display. This is what happens if you don't um, take it easy. You know, we're the empire. Uh, you're a particular subset of it, but just don't threaten the peace of Rome. And so they're saying, it's not simply that we have a theological problem, that we're not convinced that he's right, but, but if people start to believe in him, the guy who's saying he's the king that was sent, but is telling us not to pick up weapons. Could you imagine what happens if we follow this guy, if the Romans get angry, and then he's trained all these people not to fight? Isn't that going to be, there's going to be just a few of us left trying to protect the temple, trying to protect our nation. Um, it's understandable why they thought this, but... What is it in this statement of Caiaphas, the high priest in verse 50? Do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? And so more than a thousand years later, Jeremy Bentham and utilitarianism, this, there's echoes of a kind of argument that makes sense to us. Look, people are gonna die. We can't help it, we can't control Rome. Isn't it better if one person dies than the whole nation? And there's a certain logic to that. I'm sure many of you would say, Actually, if we have to make a choice, there's no good outcome. So why not have him die rather than us? And that often is a good way to think, but it is also often not like in this situation where it's clear that the one person we're proposing die uh, is clearly innocent. And not only is he innocent of not having anything done wrong, but he has done so much right that when you think of what will be for the good of the nation, he's coming and saying, I am now fulfilling God's plan and purposes for the life and the good of the nation to look with fear at the Roman Empire and to believe that there's a spiritual kingdom that Jesus is bringing in reality, I suspect many of us, if we were there, would simply say, it is better if somebody's gonna die, right? Isn't it better if it be that one man because if people are believing in him, so if we could do away with him and the problem that he's raising, the problem that he's raising is people are believing and that's a threat to us. John is saying the problem is that people are not believing because by believing in him, you will get life. And so as it turns out, you can make a deal with the Romans and then in, in you know, another 30 or 40 years, the Romans come not 
Christian leadership, not the church. Uh, it would be hundreds of years before Rome itself would be brought under the kingdom of God in some official way, but the Romans come in and they do destroy the temple and they do cause problems for the nation. The very thing that in John 1, Jesus was alluding to would happen, they unjustly make that decision. Um, and so the problem for human beings is that we feel somebody needs to be punished, somebody needs to pay, and until we do, we'll never get out of this. And in many ways, uh, we are uh, just a recipe for injustice. So in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This was the moment where they said this has to happen. And in verse 57, the chief priests, the Pharisees, had given order that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So at this point, uh, without a doubt, Jesus is going to die. And so why is he dying? Because he is showing signs. He's feeding people. He's healing the blind. He's calling a man out of the grave and saying, if you believe in me, greater things will happen. But in the inability to grasp at the concerns, if he does this, it's gonna get out of hand and we have a mounting political problem. And so they take things into their own hands politically. You know, when you read the ethical teachings of Jesus, there's a holistic approach. He doesn't say there's one or two principles, um, but he really wants things to be thorough. He says, you need to be careful how you're looking at things. And so if you're looking with greed at money, if you're looking at people with lust, um, that's gonna keep feeding these problematic things. If with your words, you're not careful, if your truth is always somehow qualified, you're not speaking plainly, things are gonna get muddled. Jesus is calling people to say, you know, the world is so complicated, you need to simplify your life just by being committed to what's right and, and resisting anything that would muddle things. Um, and yet, um, as inspiring as his ethical teachings are, we know our own hearts. How do we get rid of that mounting uh, resentment that feels like unless we vent it, it's gonna cause a heart attack. And so I don't know how many of you live in apartments where your windows face a street, that when the warm weather comes and you think, oh, isn't it so nice that it's warm? And besides having to deal with allergies in our neighborhood, you deal with lots of people on loud motorcycles that do wheelies for 20 minutes on your block. And so if you're one of those who have been watching TV and then find for one minute you can't hear the dialogue because of the noise outside, how does that affect you? With patience, do you give thanks for the warm weather and people enjoying the sidewalk or do you start to think, look at this disturbance. And so some of you, if there was a lever, next to that chair where you're watching TV, if you pulled it, if a meteor could drop from heaven and squash all of those people on the motorcycles, uh, I think many of you would, would feel justified in doing it, that anger. Um, and, and a week later, you'd say, it was a little bit harsh. I lost a minute of dialogue and 10 people died. But the way that the human mind works is you'd still need to say, but it wasn't just that I lost the TV. I mean, these kids, we know what else they're doing and we know, and, and therefore to, to, to reinforce an interpretation of what you did, rather than coming clean, um, there's a distortion of the events around that. And that's the problem is we're all stuck in these distorted interactions where, where deep down inside, every one of us wants good productive outcomes, but all of us are stuck with our resentments, our bitterness, our confusion. And in the midst of that, take away the good intentions, there are people that are intent on doing things that are problematic. And therefore, at some point, we're gonna conclude somebody needs to die. We need to hate someone. And so for Christians, one of the things that we should note from this instinct as we are sent 
into the world. We're not called to retreat from the world, but we're to be part of the world. And that means we need to cooperate with the varied Christian views, but we need to be cooperating with everyone. Um, One of the dangers is that spirit that is in all of us and is controlling in the world, the spirit that feeds resentment and envy, the, the spirit that feeds pride and greed is at work and is not always acknowledged, but you could sense it in the dialogue and think of the last few years, how polarized we have been. And, and our arguments are not iron sharpening iron, two different positions so we can hammer it out to come to a good place even though we disagree. But there's a sense in which uh, we've defined a group that we hate and therefore we wanna harm them, we wanna do away with them, we wanna silence them, we wanna kill them however we can. And for Christians who can't be removed from these debates, the danger is we get pulled in in the spirit of them and inadvertently at times, we wind up Christianizing a fundamentally problematic view. We wind up using Bible verses to baptize a view that doesn't have its origin in seeking peace, but uses the language of seeking peace to mask the hostility. And Christians get caught up because all of us are dealing with our own anger, our frustration, our disappointment. And that perverts our genuine desire for the good of the world. And so it's not that when things are polarized, one side is not more right than the others. It's not that Christians sometimes shouldn't take a firm and bold stand. We have to be very careful when the spirit undergirding a movement is fundamentally one that just seeks to destroy, that we don't come in and allow that to be the dominant thing because Christians may not have all the practical answers, but we're meant to have the Holy Spirit which is produces the fruit of peace and righteousness and joy. And therefore the challenge of being engaged with fixing our corrupt world is we will always be pulled in. And Jesus is saying, when I came, what did I do? I fed people, I healed the blind. <laughs> and people believed, that was the point. And what happens when people believe? Somebody's gonna die. And it's better if it be one person rather than many. And so we kill the righteous one. Um, We need to be careful. So why did Jesus die? Jesus died historically because people were believing in him and that belief created political threat. That's one angle on it. There's a theological answer though, and that's what I'm gonna spend the remainder of the time talking about. Why did Jesus die? Here's God's perspective. If you take this story along with the story of the whole Bible, why is it that Jesus came and was handed over to death? If one of the things from the beginning, one of the aspects of the story is a failure to trust God, um, you could see in this decision when they say, our temple, our place, our people. Well, we're God's people. (laughs) Maybe we should trust God. If this is God's savior, maybe we should trust that we'll face Rome. Uh, The failure to trust God is woven into all of the interactions, the unbelief that your spouse or your close friend actually, if you could stay with them, in this difficult period, it may resolve. The unbelief that says, I need to take this into my own hands and punish them and fix them. Uh, unbelief often in, uh, is, is, is at work. One of the reasons God sends Jesus is that we would believe. And his death plays an important role in that. So um, what's interesting is we go to, come to this passage and if you're reading John's gospel, the timing of the events it's clear that, that Jesus seems to be saying throughout his ministry that there's an hour that's coming. That hour is the hour that he'll be betrayed, handed over, he'll be crucified. That's clearly essential in the telling of the story. 
And now the timing is coming together. So last week, that's one of the things we considered because uh, this, his friend Lazarus was sick and Jesus delayed coming. And when Jesus came, the statement of faith of those who loved Lazarus, Jesus, if you had been here, this was a statement of faith. We believe that you healed a man born blind. You caused a person who couldn't walk to be able to walk. We believe that if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. But at that point, they don't seem to think Jesus could do anything. There was a limit to their belief, and Jesus is going to show them that their belief needs to deepen. But we raised the question last week of the timing of, was it cruel for Jesus to allow Lazarus to die as if Jesus was just proving a point? But the point was, it's not that he wanted to let Lazarus die, but in the sign of the Creator, every human being has the potential to take life from someone. None of us has the ability to give life. And so Jesus has this sign that should say, believe in me and I will give life. And that sign winds up being the very sign that leads to the hostility towards him. He doesn't let Lazarus die because he thinks little of Lazarus dying. He, he comes at the timing because he will watch over Lazarus and give him the life that Lazarus and his family long for. But he knows that when he comes then and gives him life, that will be the end. So. Jesus does withdraw, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly because at this moment where the council gathers, they make a decision. So they've decided the verdict first before the trial, he must die. They haven't interviewed him. And then they're gonna arrest him and then the interview is just gonna reinforce what they've already committed to. Jesus withdraws, is it because he's afraid of dying? No, he says, the reason I came was to die. So he uh, withdraws and doesn't walk openly so they can't arrest him because he's avoiding arrest because his movement has a different nature? No, because of the timing of things. And so verses 55 and 56 signal for us in John's gospel, now is the time. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up to the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all. So these are not necessarily the people looking to seize him. These are, are people who are coming to the celebration and they've maybe wherever they're from, they've heard of Jesus and they're wondering, will he come to the Passover? And of course the answer is he will. He comes at the time of the Passover when Jerusalem is filled and that's when he's arrested, that's when he's betrayed and John tells us that's exactly when he dies. He comes to the Passover not as the faithful member of the nation of Israel who will celebrate what God did many years ago. He comes to the Passover as the one who will be sacrificed for the nation. If you're familiar with the Passover story, there was an earlier period, you could read about this in the book of Exodus, where, where God's people faced such a hostile ruler at this time, it was Egypt rather than Rome. Um, and as God's people are growing, they became a threat, and so, so the determination was every male that is born to these people, we will kill. So now, not only have they enslaved God's people, but they're wiping out the males to keep them from growing. And so the people are crying out, and God comes and says, I will send you to, to Pharaoh, and, and the message is, let my people go that they may worship me. So when Pharaoh says, no, they're gonna stay here and serve me, He's clearly saying, these are my people, not your people. And so a series of signs, there are 12, these plagues that come in the book of Exodus, but the final one is death, um, where Pharaoh refuses because of his hard heart to let them go. Um, Pharaoh is the one bringing death, 
And now death is going to come to every household. That's the 12th and the final sign in the book of Exodus. But it's an interesting story where God's people are told by revelation, a messenger comes uh, through Moses' leadership. Uh, here's what you do. Take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb and take the blood and put it over the door. Death is coming to Egypt, whole scale now. Every household will have somebody die. But if the angel of death sees the blood on your door, the angel will pass over. And it's not that death won't come to your household, but death will come by the lamb rather than the child. And then he brings people out. Interesting, if you wanted to intersect those stories, what's the first of the 12 signs turning the Nile to blood? What is the first of Jesus' signs in John's gospel turning water into wine? Uh, but there aren't 12 signs in John's gospel. There are seven, and they're not signs of judgment and death. They're signs of life. And now after the seventh sign of the healing of Lazarus, there is a fulfillment. So go back to John 1, and when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when does Jesus come? Will he come to the Passover? Yes, he will come to the Passover. The Lamb of God will come to the Passover so that the high priest Caiaphas, who spoke of his own frustration and his own distorted view of how to preserve the nation, in his role as priest, we're told, spoke prophetically. And so verses 51 and 52, Caiaphas did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Why did Jesus die from a human perspective? He was a threat. Why did Jesus die from God's perspective? Because he would die not only for this nation, but to gather the scattered children. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I, I come to, to call people and to gather them and to create a flock. But here we see something strange in this change. The shepherd becomes the sheep so that the sheep could become children. That's the story. And, and we have to be careful about mixing metaphors because each of them conveys something, but sheep wander and are vulnerable. And so Jesus comes to gather us. But children are also vulnerable, but children can learn in ways that sheep can't. So Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life. Yes, one person will die for the nation, but it's not because of a corrupt purpose. It's because of God's good purpose, that he himself will bear our sin so that in our world that says somebody needs to pay, there needs to be death, and we are wrong in saying that, God sends his son into the world who bears the payment, who undergoes death. So when the blood of the lamb by faith is on you, that death, that hostile judgment will pass over you. And what we're told, then it passes over you because you're now not simply part of a flock, but you're part of a family. The broken apart, scattered people around the world, Jesus is sent into the world to call and to reclaim. His purpose is not to judge and to bring death. His purpose is to announce and to bring life. And if this world rejects and kills those who give life, Jesus will allow his life to be taken to show that not only does he have the power over death, but he has the power over life itself. And is told, now if you will receive this by faith, faith is not how you threaten what's good. Faith is how you receive life. And if we live in a world that will threaten you for believing, hold on and don't be overtaken by the spirit of the world that wants to hate and blame and punish and destroy, but hold to the Holy Spirit that calls you to keep 
faithful and giving life. And so John 1, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. It's that reality. That's why Jesus came. As we think about this, let me just point one thing, which is faith is foundational. If underneath it all is, is, is something in each of us that says, I don't know that I could trust God. And as your life unfolds in this confusing world with all of the things that happen, that is a question that you will have to face. Can I trust God? And why did Jesus die? Well, if you need an argument that God is good and loves you and you need to reason towards, I don't believe that God loves me, Jesus dying will be something that you can work through. What does this mean? Why did it happen? How could that convince me? Uh, The problem is some of us live as though we constantly need that case made, I believe, but now here's this challenge that I'm facing. So Lord, how do I know that you love me? And inevitably, all of us will have to do the work to to realize this makes sense. If you're willing to let God be the one who teaches and instructs you, that it's logical, it's coherent to believe in Jesus. Um, It's not that we have to give up thinking, but, but the problem is we're always constantly thinking and evaluating, continue to prove to me, And what happens is then um, the power of faith isn't at work in us. So yes, do the work to be convinced that God's love is real and why Jesus died will be helpful in that. But don't live every day asking God to prove it to you. God, do you love me? We know that he does because he sent Jesus. What's an interesting dynamic in the Christian life is if you hold to that and don't question it, it will give you the strength to endure the challenges that you face. If you use your energy in every challenge to wonder, why are you doing this, God? Do you love me? Do you hate me? Are you gonna punish me? And if you say, I'm gonna stop doing that work, but I'm simply by faith gonna believe on this basis that if you love me enough to send Jesus for me, I'm just gonna assert that is true and not use my time arguing with God of whether or not he's just. I'm gonna believe God is just, that he's given me life. And then I'm gonna argue with my mind, (laughs) my conscience, my faith, anything that's telling me it's not true. You can't trust God. Don't do what God says. Don't do what's faithful. If you don't vent this anger, you're going to be stuck with it. And that's where you have to stop and say, God, I'm going to believe as a presupposition that you are gracious and love me and you are watching over me. So if that is foundational, then the question is, what do I do? How do I make sense with this? You'll draw a very different conclusion if you're trying to say, first, God, show me you love me, then what do I do? If you say, God, I'm going to believe that you love me, and now I'm gonna ask you to show me what to do, the outcome will be different. So think about that. Um, You know, I think I've referred to this recently, just because you watch one video and then the algorithm keeps sending the videos, for whatever reason, I get lots of videos of people rescuing animals. I'm not interested in it, but I, I now stop and watch them and they're not all the same. Sometimes it's a, you know, a deer stuck in a, wire fence, sometimes it's something that steps in a trap or went in a, in a hole. But, but the theme of the bulk of these videos is a human being who sees with compassion and wants to help, but can't communicate to the trapped animal because we have language. Uh, if the animal has a language, we don't know it. Three years on your iPhone, ChatGPT, tell the deer that I'm okay. For now, with the videos, the deer is already in stress, you come near and the deer sees you as in distress. And so 
What's great about these videos is the person, instead of saying, you know what, I'm just going to let the deer suffer, the person that says, I'm going to let the deer kick me, and I'm going to bear that pain in order to free the deer, and the deer will flee and will not come back and thank me. The deer will experience me as having increased the pain, not realizing that actually I was the one bearing the pain. Um, how does God convince human beings? We have language, so God speaks, but, but God, we are not God. <laughs> how do we believe that when he draws near, that even if we're afraid of him and we're kicking at him, that he's bearing it because his purpose is to give life, because his purpose is to set us free, and because we have language, he then makes an argument, now come back. <laughs> Trust me, don't flee. If I did this for you, what will I not do for you? And so therefore, um, have your foundation. I can trust God. And now I need to figure out how. Um, last thing I'll say, this week, uh, starting tomorrow, our church is trying an initiative to encourage everyone to read the whole New Testament in the month of May. Some of you won't be able to do it. A bit, if you're a student and final exams are coming, maybe you try this in June. I don't know, do the best that you can, about 45 minutes a day. Uh, if you miss a few days, just have a marathon for two hours. You'll be able to read the whole New Testament in one month. There's a number of reasons that it's good for us to do this, but one thing that I've been saying is come with a question. What is it that you need to know? And have you been grappling with, Lord, why is the world unfair? Why is my life not working out? What choice should I make? And if you don't have a question, come with this question. Why did Jesus die? But no doubt you have some question, and it's not that the New Testament will answer your specific question, but the New Testament, if you are looking to grow as a disciple to gain the mind of Christ, will create that foundation, whereas if it doesn't tell you explicitly what to do, will, will reshape you so that you don't make your choices, you don't perceive and interpret the world through your hostility and your bitterness and your anger, but that having been brought to life by God's grace, um, now we view the world. Having one month to say, Lord, shape my mind in a radical way, I would encourage you prayerfully, read to the New Testament uh, this next month, and, and don't have it as a separate part of your life, but as an essential part of going back into the world, uh, taking the things you've read, and allowing that to help you to interpret what's happening. And in June, let's come together and find out what God has been teaching us, what God is showing us. We believe as a church that God is good and his ways are right. We also believe life is not easy. <laughs> so as we're struggling through life, um, what are the questions that need to be answered? The question, why did Jesus die? We've got a problem. But God worked within that for our salvation to give us life. So that's the answer to today's question. Um, what questions are you grappling with? somehow part of the answer is going to have some connecting point to Jesus dying on your behalf. I don't know how, you may not know how yet, but if God loved us that he did that for us, you're going to have to answer the question in light of that reality. So bring your questions to God and pray that in his spirit he would give you answers. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we come today, we come needing help, and we thank you that you have sent Jesus, that even if we are responsible for rejecting him, we marvel that in our very rejection, you were bearing that hostility in order to give life to us in the very process of unbelief and confusion. Lord, forgive us our sins and make us new that we would not be like sheep who wander, but we would be like children who are part of that family, no longer scattered, but gathered in your presence. Uh, and help us in our weakness and provide for us. And uh, this month, for those of us who are making sacrifices to try to take in as much of Scripture as possible, um, lead us by your Spirit and
convince us of these great things that will anchor us for life in this world. We pray in his name. Amen.